I'm uh, going to be talking today about long-term incarnational ministry. And so I'm going to be getting into why the model of staying long-term among one language group by the grace of God to see one strong New Testament church planted is worth giving one's life for. Both long-term ministry and incarnational and the incarnational model, which I'll get into a little bit more, are not the preferred model of our day. Faster, quicker, more efficient methods have usurped them in preference across wide swaths of the evangelical world. But my hope is today to speak of and maybe call us back to a model that is older, more historical, and I believe more biblical. And so I'm going to dive into that today. And I'm going to lean on the stories of two men. Uh, three books about two men, and the two men are Adniram Judson and John Payton. And the three books are To the Golden Shore, which is a wonderful biography of Adniram Judson, and then John Payton's autobiography, and then an, um, a biography by him as, or about him by Paul Schleiline. And you'll find all three of those books at the Banner Bookstore back there. And you're going to be getting one of those books as a handout as well later on this, uh, today. So I'm going to lean heavily on their stories and pull different excerpts. Sometimes things uh, are more, more palatable if we hear them from different voices, voices that have passed ahead of us. And just by the way, really quickly, uh, for those of you that are like saying, why is he pronouncing John Payton so funny? It's actually Payton, not Patton. I love John Piper, wonderful brother. He has discipled us poorly in how to pronounce that man's name. <laughs> it's John Payton. I was speaking at a... a banner event, Banner of Truth, the guys who were here uh, with the bookstore, and they pulled me aside, and these are Scottish brethren, and some of you guys know Peyton was a Scot, and they said, listen, Patton's the general, Peyton's the missionary. So <laughs> I was severely rebuked, and I'm passing that rebuke on to you. A couple qualifiers before we get into the message today. Uh, just so we are, I am framing this message correctly and you kind of have some parameters for my thoughts here. Number one, Radius is not against short-term ministries. We are not against short-term ministries. Two of the best short-term ministries that I know engage global and caravan ministries, Mexico caravan ministries, both of them are here. I would highly encourage you to check out their booths. They are excellent ministries that help churches engage and better yet they teach they don't just have you building houses or doing things that make you feel good they'll teach what missions is about so not against those programs in any way but the point of this talk is not to knock those things or social ministries social programs or a host of good endeavors but by their very nature these endeavors are not able to bring about the power of the gospel and see generational churches established among unreached language groups. They're short term. And so we're looking for something that will bring the power of the gospel and see a New Testament church planted that by God's grace will outlive every one of us in this room. That's the goal. And that doesn't happen with short-term ministries. And so just so I'm clear up front, Radius is not against short-term ministries. We love them. We partner with them. But to see churches planted, that's a different animal. And then the second one, uh, Radius does not have an infatuation with going slow. There's a little bit of a burble out there. I heard a guy um, the other day say, oh, you guys are the old school guys. You guys are the guys that like to go slow. No, not so much. Not really. Uh, 
we're actually the guys we hope that everyone coming through the program and every missionary that goes overseas is able to see converts and churches planted in the fastest time frame possible. But above all else, we want to make sure that they're true conversions and true churches planted. That's the goal, to see true fruit coming out of these ministries that are happening in these far-flung corners. Paul, in his book to the Galatians, makes it really clear that there is such a thing as a false gospel. And good-hearted Christians with good motives can unintentionally be doing things that will long-term kneecap true church planning efforts. And so I'm not against speed. Radius is not against speed. We just want to see things that are authentic and true. So we spend an inordinate amount of time at Radius uh, talking about what is and what isn't the gospel. What is and what isn't a New Testament church. And there is a large degree of difference. You're going to get a book tomorrow, Conversion by Michael Lawrence. I'm going to encourage every one of you to read it. And if you, we got a larger number of registrants than we thought. And so there's going to be some of you that are going to get another book. Buy that book. It will help clarify what is and what isn't the gospel. Uh, And then the final little point, a quick little explanation. At Radius, we found it more objective, more biblically defensible to speak about unreached language groups. Not a lot of us are going to talk about unreached people groups. Unreached people groups has just gotten so broad. North American hockey players somehow slide in there. Other people that I'm like, eh, we had a bunch of hockey players staying at our hotel last night. They won the championship for the International Hockey League. I'm not sure they're an unreached people group, though they did some crazy things after they won last night. Um, We're going to talk about things in terms of languages. And when I say unreached language groups, I'm talking about the 3,100, some people will say 3,112 language groups left on the face of the earth today that have no gospel, no disciples, and most importantly, no church. That's what I'm talking about. And according to the latest mission statistics, less than 3% of all Christian missionaries and less than 1% of all Christian giving goes towards reaching those language groups. So that's part of the reason why we attack and kind of go after that explanation. It's just a little more defensible, a little bit easier easier to quantify. All right, so with that prelude, uh, let me get into what we're going to talk about today. And I want to give just a brief background. I know... Man, I think I know about half of you in this room. The other half, I don't think I do. Just a brief background of my own story so you'll know some of the explanations and why I'm coming at certain topics the way that I am. Um, number one, I was raised overseas in uh, the country of Papua New Guinea. Went to a boarding school from first grade to 12th grade. Uh, got on an airplane, flew two and a half hours to the boarding school. Uh, had a couple years in the middle there where we came back to the United States and uh, did some schooling back here. Finished up high school over there, was uh, bent on joining the Marine Corps, made a deal with my dad. He said, if you'll give me two years in college, then I'll let you uh, go to the Corps. Went into uh, college. My freshman orientation coordinator is my lovely wife. She walked in the door, and I waved bye-bye to the Marine Corps. Ended up graduating from there, got a degree in business administration, started working as an accountant, eventually accounting manager, and within a year and a half, I was CFO of North American Operations, worked for a Dutch company, uh, worked a lot in the Netherlands, a little bit in Germany, a little bit in France. 
Uh, we had a lot of things that we were excited about. We were able to get out of our college loans within a year and a half. Just a lot of neat things happening in our life. And guys, uh, we never got a missionary call, so to speak. We read our Bibles, and we had the confirmation of our church elders. And based on that, we stepped back into the world of missions. And we headed over to the country of Papua New Guinea, where I grew up, uh, looked at the list of people groups that were asking for missionaries at that time, and we picked one of those people groups called the Yembe Yembe people. Uh, we moved in among them in 2004. Uh, we started to learn their language. It took us two and a half years to learn their language to full fluency, and then finally uh, we got to the point to where we could develop their alphabet. We had, they had no written language, so we had to develop an alphabet, teach them how to read and write in their own language, and then start to translate scripture to get ahead of the teaching before the teaching came. And then 2008, fast forward, uh, we started the teaching from Genesis to Christ, and it took us four months to go through that process, and by God's great grace at the end of it, we had a handful of believers, and how those believers lived, and how those believers died impacted the rest of the people group to where today 50% of that people group is roughly 50% are part and members of the church there in Yembiembi with its own elders, its own deacons, and its own translated word of God. The translation took us uh, 10 years to accomplish. That was a hard task. It took a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a very team-centric uh, effort. But by God's grace, we get to go back there every year. So uh, Nina and me, Nina's my wife, uh, we came back to the United States in late 2016. 2017, I took this job, and we go back every year to check on the church. And we have to get permission from the church elders to speak in Sunday before we arrive. Uh, but wonderful to see new believers coming in that we had nothing to do with, that we weren't a part of their uh, understanding of the gospel and being brought into the body of believers there as a church. So that's my background, uh, just really quickly. So for today, if you're taking notes for the topic that I'm going to get into, I'm going to talk on three areas. Number one, why long-term missions? Why long-term missions? Number two, the cost of long-term missions. And then number three, the glory of long-term missions. And each one of these points is going to have two sub-points underneath them. So why long-term missions? To help illuminate the truths of this, I want us to turn, if you've got your Bibles, to the book of Acts, chapter 20, and Paul's final address to the Ephesian elders as he says goodbye to them. And I think the heart of Paul and his priorities in church planting come through so clearly in this passage. So Acts, chapter 20 starting in verse 17. Why long-term missions? It says this, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, 
Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know how my hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So the principle we see here, first of all, that I would just want to pull out of this passage. If we're talking about why long-term ministry, principle number one, long-term ministry adorns the gospel message. Long-term ministry adorns the gospel message. This isn't a group that knew Paul by a series of lectures alone or thought of him as a teacher or a leader alone. He was all of those things, but he was their friend They'd lived with him, they'd eaten with him, they'd walked with him, they'd seen him work, they'd seen him so tense. Think of the tenderness, the bond that these guys had. The closeness of all of that comes through in this passage. So much so, Paul knew these guys so much to that level that to say this incredible thing, that he's innocent of the blood of all men. What a great testimony to know that the people he had stayed with so long and preached the word to so clearly that he could make this claim. He's innocent of the blood of all men. When we moved in among the Yembe Yembe people in 2004, I'll never forget this. We moved in and there was two other families on the team. And the Yembe's came to us uh, the first day that we were in there. And they said, our, how long are you going to be here? And we said, we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language. Number two, we're going to uh, develop your alphabet. We're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. Number three, we're going to translate this really important book into your language. And number four, we're going to teach you what's in that book. So it's going to take a long time. We're going to be here for quite a while. And they said, okay, great. We don't want you to be like the ones who go and come. 
And we didn't know what they were, because we're working through an interpreter at this point, because we didn't know their language. And what they had meant was there had been tourists who had flown in on helicopters who would trade for them in an afternoon, jump back on the helicopter and fly back out. And there was actually a short-term missions team that had come in and given the gospel in one afternoon, not knowing the national language, not knowing the Yembe Yembe's language, came in and did the entire gospel presentation in mimes. And anyone who believed got a bar of soap. Do you know how many people believed? Believed? The whole crowd, man, who doesn't like a good bar of soap? Everybody went forward. And so the Yembe's, more confused than anything, came to us at the beginning of our time there. Are you gonna be like those ones who go and come? We said, no, we're, we're here for these tasks. It's going to take us many, many years. And so they said, okay, if that's the case, we want you adopted into clans. And Yembe Yembe, there's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. Four brothers way back when. And so they looked at us, and they looked at me. I've got these long legs and this crooked nose from playing college basketball. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. My wife has long blonde hair. They put her in the eagle clan and they adopted us into each one of the clans. And then they made us get remarried. They didn't believe our marriage. They call every place outside of Papua New Guinea, the cold country fitting for Minneapolis. But anyways, um, they called it the cold. We don't think they married you correctly in the cold country. And so they had us get remarried they gave us new names in Yembe Yembe. Your name is this prized thing that you don't call out regularly. When you see somebody walking, only strangers call each other by their names. It's a hidden thing that only the family knows. You know how you relate to everybody? By how you're related to them. Second cousin, third cousin, cousin on my mother's side, brother-in-law, sister-in-law. Everybody in the tribe of a thousand people knows each other by their relationship to them. And so we had to sit down and graph this whole thing out with the MB's help to figure out where did we fit in this whole line of, this whole hierarchy of names and knowledge. Guys, we did all of this so that we would be a known commodity to the Yembe Yembe, so that we would become, in essence, Yembe Yembe to them and to get adopted into that system. For those of you that are here uh, that know this, when you're overseas, uh, some of you I know are veteran missionaries. We've got a handful of those guys in this crowd. Those of you that have been overseas know that the longer you stay among a people group, you start eating their food. Your sweat starts to smell differently. Your English starts to bend around the local language that you're learning. You start to change in some tangible ways that are so effective at driving in. You're part of that people group. And I can't help but think Paul living among the Ephesians and the way that he lived and the way that he mingled with that people, how that adorned the gospel so deeply. Christ alone, I want to make this point, Christ alone is the only true incarnational model. But as missionaries die to calendars and buy into long-term ministry that looks, smells, feels, and sounds like the people God has sent them to, they model what Jesus did well during his time on earth. Jesus is the only true incarnation. But good missionaries become like the people they're sent to. And the longer you stay, the more aromatic, the more beautiful the stronger the smell of the gospel. Number two, long-term ministry is necessary if a healthy church is the goal. Long-term ministry is necessary if the healthy church is the goal. 
Listen again to verses 28 and 29. Paul says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Paul's first overriding concern in his departure speech was not about the Ephesian elders. It was about the Ephesian church. That was his primary concern. He loved these brothers. He cared for them. He'd walked the paths with them. He'd eaten food with them. But his care, his primary concern, was not with them as individuals. It was for the church that was being left behind there. Contemplate that for a second, why he spent so much time there. And I know that there's some thoughts going out in missiology today that try and equate Paul's timetable of how long he spent three years in Ephesus with current methodologies. But remember this, Paul spoke the language and knew the culture incredibly well. We know that he spoke three languages, at least possibly four, and he knew Greek, Roman, and Hebrew culture incredibly well. He spoke from that platform, and still he prays for clarity. Day and night, pulpit and house to house, working to see that church planted deeply. His care, first and foremost, clarity and teaching, gathering of the church, making sure that that church is strong, that the elders watch over that flock, that he knows challenges are coming, wolves will be coming. If we are to see churches established, it will take long-term workers. If we're looking for converts, even disciples, That's a different matter. But to see those disciples gathered into a self-led, self-teaching, self-propagating body of believers, that's a long-term project. That doesn't happen in two, five, even seven years. It's a long-term venture, especially amongst unreached language groups. There are shorter, more efficient methods that are common in our day. Shortcuts that don't require worldview fluency and language. Market fluency will do. Methods that will utilize new believers and even unbelievers as teachers. And oral translations of the Bible over the written word. All of these will shave off large chunks of time and get the gospel worker on a much faster schedule. But make no mistake, the price tag will be paid in the church left behind. The faster you go, the price is paid somewhere. Somewhere there's going to be a cost. And usually it's in what is left behind. If we're going to establish churches that outlive us, generational churches, only long-term ministry sees that through. Listen to Adoniram Judson when they started introducing, in his day, short-term workers and short-term methods. This isn't Brooks Buser, this isn't Radius, this is Adoniram Judson. The opening of 1833 brought additional missionaries from the United States. But as usual, they could not be of much real use until they became fluent in the language, and that would be a matter of years. At least one of these had come out with the understanding that his service was to be of limited time period. Adoniram was disturbed like his experienced colleagues. I much fear that this will occasion a breach in our mission. How can we who are devoted for life cordially take to our hearts one who is a mere hireling? 
I have seen the beginning, middle, and end of limited-term missionaries. Though brilliant in an English pulpit, they're incompetent for any real missionary work. They come out for a few years with the view of acquiring a stock of credit on which they may vegetate the rest of their days in the congenial climate of their native land. The motto of every missionary, whether preacher, printer, schoolmaster, ought to be devoted for life. Devoted for life. This isn't Brooks. This isn't Radius. This is Adoniram Judson. Every missionary committed for life. We're there for the long term. Why was he so strong on this? Why was Adoniram? I mean, these are, those are strong words. Adoniram and everyone who's been in a pioneering context knows that where the church has never been established, if the church is going to be rooted deeply, only the long-term approach will do. Everything else is band-aids and fast food. Great for quick fixes, horrible for marathons. If we're going to see the church established, it's going to take time. If it's going to be rooted deeply, it's going to have to have the aroma of workers who lived, bled, cried, saw family members go, saw teammates leave, and they stayed. To God's glory, they stayed. This is how we see churches planted long-term. To the second point, the cost of long-term missions. The cost of long-term missions. I don't want to gloss over the reason uh, that long-term missionaries are more and more rare. That's not a common thing we see in this day and age. And when I say long-term, I'm talking about anything from seven years past. Anything past seven years, uh, we're, st- we're talking about someone who's starting to get into the rhythm of life, the language, the culture of the people group that they're starting to reach. No one should choose long-term missions if other options are equally valid. If there are other options that are less painful, other options that don't have such a steep price tag, why in the world would anybody go for longer than seven years? Why would they go for 10? Why would they- if there are other means to accomplish the same goals. I don't believe there are. But two areas that I want to touch on. Number one, on the cost of missions. Just so we're speaking clearly. This is not a cost-free endeavor. The first cost, and probably the most obvious, is the cost of the family. The cost on the family. I'm often reminded at Radius that the students who come to us in many ways are uncommon and quite often come from uncommon families and uncommon churches. To speak of a life of consecration for 15, 20, 30 years requires everyone involved, those who go and those who stay, to swallow deeply to think about the cost of this. Just the other day, we had a loving family member of one of our students who was preparing to reach out to their local congressman because this group down in Mexico was telling their son and daughter, daughter daughter-in-law, that they were going to be gone for a long time and take their grandkids with them. And so they were about to call their local congressman uh, to report this organization called Radius. Thankfully, there was a local church that stepped in and uh, helped with that situation. I've been driven to tears with pride at families that count the cost, the cost of saying goodbye to sons, daughters, grandchildren, and futures that will never be realized. What it's like to walk away from family businesses, the great job, Christmas time at home, 
and a host of other things can be quite painful. The cost to the family is the steepest in the missions world. Make no mistake about it. That's the number one thing. Parents, those of you that are in the crowd, young people looking to leave behind home and family, this is a real cost. But I'm encouraged with Peyton's autobiography and his recounting of his departure the first time he left his father. He says this, I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from gaze and then hastening on my way vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as God had given me. The appearance of my father when he parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and the walking away, head uncovered, have often all through my life risen vividly before my mind, and do so now while I am writing, as if it had only been an hour ago. The memory of leaving his family for the first time, and what his parents had instilled in him, And he remembers it all the way to the end. And Paul Schleinlein adds this to the account. I think this is fabulous. He says this, Let every person note the weight such wise counsel will have upon their children's lives. Let every parent who clutches jealously to kith and kin ponder Peyton's godly parents. Let them contemplate whether it be hypocrisy to sing, Give of thy sons, bear the message glorious but glorious only if that son belongs to someone else. When it seemed the whole world of Christian influence impeded Peyton's plans, it was the words of his parents that buttressed his resolve. Whatever uncertainty he may have had, it melted like snow atop the hearth of what he learned in his home. Parents, godly parents, raise your sons, raise your daughters to let them go. Raise them as courageous soldiers that will take the message of the cross to places far and wide. The cost is large, and fewer and fewer we see families looking at that unflinchingly. But by God's grace, those who do will someday, not likely on this earth, but someday they'll be able to say it was worth it. It was worth it to see a son and daughter step into that. And I'm encouraged again by Peyton and the, the way that he lived on the island of Aniwa, burying his first wife on Tana, eventually burying seven children. And this is his thought on his remaining kids who lived and what he hoped they would do with their lives. He says this, I deeply rejoice when I breathe the prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field. And that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying Jesus and his gospel into the heart of the heathen world. That was his prayer. Buried seven children. His first wife within six months. Lord, I pray that the kids who lived. I pray that the ones who are going to reach adulthood. I pray that they'd go. Sometimes when men and women of our time read of such things, it sounds almost superhuman to them, like something unhuman, something from a different world. How can normal Christians see their sons and daughters board ships and airplanes and be gone for decades? The only answer that I have, those who are able to do such things are able to see past this world, to measure things not in years, but in eternity. 
Can you measure things in eternity rather than years? That's the only way you get over the cost of sending family. The second cost that's not so easily recognized in our time is the cost to the church. The cost to the church. One of the interesting things that I observed coming back in 2016 was how many, how do I say this, interesting people are finding their way into missions. There still persists this idea in many quarters, unfortunately, in evangelicalism, that if someone's kind of awkward, someone's kind of strange, you would never make them a greeter in your church. They're going to be perfect in India. They're going to be wonderful in Indonesia. Somehow that idea still has some merit. Well, they're awkward here. It'll be great in Afghanistan. It'll just work out. Pastors, elders, church leaders, if they're awkward here, it will be worse overseas. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. You multiply that by a few times when you go through another culture and language. If they can't hold down a job here, if they play Xbox in their parents' basement here for nine hours a day, don't send them to the mission field. Do not be the church that finds the awkward people. Definitely not on the elder track. Let's send them. Don't do that, brothers and sisters. Missionaries should be subject to the same 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 requirements as elders. Elders in the church. That's the trajectory that we want their lives on. We're talking many times about 20 and 30-year-olds. Some of them haven't arrived, but are they on that trajectory for the track of eldership or being wives of elders? Especially if they're going into church planting. The rise in this idea that anyone can be a missionary, that mentality has brought more people into missions, but for the sake of clear, competent, sake of a clear, competent gospel witness, they probably shouldn't have. They probably shouldn't have gone into missions because what's been done has to be undone. Think back on the history of missions. Those of you that have the background and have read into some of this, men like David Brainerd and the thousands of English speaking, thousands in the English speaking world he spoke to on a regular basis before giving his life to missions, the dozens of senior pastor positions he turned down, even the option of serving alongside Jonathan Edwards. He turned it down and he headed off to the American Indians. William Chalmers Burns, many of you haven't read anything about him. Five pioneer missionaries out there in the bookstore. Buy that book just for the chapters on William Chalmers Burns. Incredible man of God. Left everything to go to China, but before he left, he was handpicked by Robert Murray McShane to fill his pulpit for over a year. And while he's filling McShane's pulpit, more people come to the church. More people are brought into membership. Things didn't decline because we brought the missionary on for a year. They got better. This is the quality. Spurgeon and his relationship with Hudson Taylor, how he held him in high esteem. They were tight friends, poured into each other's lives. Those are the men. That's the caliber we're shooting for. These weren't flighty, searching men with nothing better to do. They were serious dedicated and gifted those are the ones we need to be sending from our churches and in many cases church leaders their church 
not themselves as individuals recognize their gifting and put the seed of missions in their mind. Church leaders, are you looking at those in your congregation that could be involved in this great task of taking God's name to the ends of the earth? Are you the initiator? Or do they have to go to a conference? Do they have to have that? And then they come to you. Are you ahead of this thing? Can you identify men, women? Consider, brother, sister, being our ambassador, being sent out by this local body to head overseas. I'm encouraged by the story of Adoniram Judson's first wife, Nancy, and her church family send-off of her and her dear friend Harriet, who were the first American missionaries sent out from these shores. Listen to this account. The same day, the two girls attended a great meeting in the church in Haverhill. The church was jammed to the rafters with onlookers. Some were merely curious to see the first American missionaries, first foreign missionaries in person. But to most, the occasion was a heart-wrenching farewell to two girls they had seen grow up almost as members of their own families. Parson Allen delivered the sermon. The good old minister had known the two since their infancy many times visiting the Hasseltine dance hall, and he had seen them whirling about, flushed and happy, enjoying themselves without a thought of what life would bring. He spoke to them, therefore, before the pack throng as if, they were, as if he were their loving father. My dear children, he told them, you are now engaged in the best of causes. It is the cause for which Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and suffered and died. You literally forsake father and mother, brothers and sisters, for the sake of Christ and the promotion of his kingdom. He had words for the girl's parents and the congregation as well, but at the end of his discourse, he turned again to Nancy and Harriet, and he concluded in a voice nearly breaking, to the care of the great head of the church, I now commit you. To his grave, I also resign you. May he gather you as one, may he gather us as one someday. And may you return and come to Zion with a song, with the shouts of everlasting joy. Churches, send your best. Send those from your leadership team that if they leave, it will leave a gaping hole. Send the ones that you know this is our future. Send those. Send your best. That's the cost to the church. And then finally, the glory of long-term missions. The glory of long-term missions. Number one, the glory of long-term missions is seen in a New Testament church. The glory of long-term missions is seen in a New Testament church. One of the things that we speak of often, and you'll see it out there on the radius signage, is the task, or excuse me, the goal of finishing Finishing well. We just sat through two weeks ago hours and hours of oral doctrinal examinations of every Radius graduate as they came through. They have to write a paper and then they have to defend that paper. And they have to write on six areas, six convictions that they have, and they have to lay out what they see as the next 10 years of their life and how they're going to potentially, by God's grace, see this task accomplished. And chief among those qualities, finishing well. Finishing well. Because here's the honest truth, guys. Starters are a dime a dozen. Finishers are rare. Finishers are rare. Starters, we have them in abundance. Especially in the North American church. Finishers, count them with two hands. 
Acts 20, 22, passage we read says this, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's sole concern was finishing. It wasn't whether he was going to get thrown in prison. It wasn't whether he was going to go through various tribulations and trials. It was finishing to see the Ephesian church brought to maturity, handed off to the elders, and to see himself faithfully giving the gospel to this church and to carry that on after his time. And how is this accomplished? How do we see these churches established? The final page of John Payton's autobiography, if you flip to the last page before the footnotes, on this last page says this, but even in India, in China, in Africa, with their countless millions, learn a lesson from the work in the New Hebrides. Plant down your forces in the heart of one tribe or race where the same language is spoken. Work solidly from the center, building up with patient teaching and lifelong care a church that will endure. Rest not till every people and language and nation has such a Christ center throbbing in its midst with the pulses of new life at full play. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's what we're heading towards. And we don't stop when we have converts. We don't stop when we have disciples. We gather those disciples into a Christ-centered New Testament church. That's the finish line. That's what finishing well means. That's long-term ministry. This task will not be accomplished in summer trips or even five to ten year stints. It will be, as Peyton said, one of lifelong care. And the final point, the glory of eternity. If we're speaking about glory, if we're speaking about leaving homes, we're speaking about leaving families, the comforts of our own country, language, culture, there's only one measurement that will suffice for that, and that's the measurement of eternity. Now, I think about what Paul says here. I think the clearest passage, and I enjoy this passage so very much, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul speaks about what's primary and what's fleeting. And he's speaking about the thanksgiving that's overflowing to the glory of God because of how the gospel is moving out to different places. And he says this to the Corinthians. So we do not lose heart, though our outer life, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Remember, when Paul says light and momentary, Paul's the one who went through three shipwrecks, five times beaten with rods. We hear rods. We're not talking about nerf sticks here. We're talking about bones, ligaments, joints coming out of socket. That's how they beat people with rods. Five times, 40 lashes minus one. 
stoned once, and somehow Paul has the audacity to say, light and momentary, light and momentary. Where do you get that from? Where do you go to view that as light and momentary? Paul's metrics were not of this world. He saw things with eternal eyes. This, this is temporary. This is fleeting. Whatever happens to this, light momentary. What's eternal, what's unseen, that's what really matters. God may allow certain missionaries to see this task completed in a shorter period of time, but for the vast majority, it will be a long, arduous process with a steep price tag. For John Payton, it was 42 years. For Adniram Judson, it was 40 years. Payton lost two wives and seven children. Judson buried two wives as well and nine children. Both faced cold, shipwrecks, spears, broken bones, and a myriad of diseases, but were ultimately spared by God to finish the work he had called them to. And in the final analysis, this is what Peyton says. Let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that if God gave me back my life again to be lived over, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar to Christ that he might use it for similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Christ. If I had to do all over again, as I buried that son, as I buried that daughter, if I had to do all over again, I'd do exactly the same thing. I'd keep going to those places that still haven't heard the name of Christ. Friends, let's not fall into the trap of believing that shorter is better. Quicker and more efficient is necessarily a friend of the gospel. They may produce a temporary high or a veneer of authenticity, but the long, slower road of patient, persistent, faithful teaching of the word of God by one capable of handling the word of truth in that particular language and culture will see fruit that far surpasses those efforts. For nearly 2,000 years, the people of God have been marked by patient, quiet endurance, all the while leaving the results to God and remaining faithful to build up that Christ-throbbing center, that church. Let's aspire to that legacy. Let's push that in our churches. Let's push that within our circle of influence. We go to see that accomplished. That's our legacy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending your son the incarnation itself who gave up the perfect home, the perfect family, the perfect living conditions to save fallen humanity from their sins. May you turn our hearts to be men and women, pastors, elders that live with eternity in mind. May we send our best. May we send with a long-term vision of planting strong, healthy New Testament churches that outlive every one of us in this room. Father, we know that this work is not accomplishable in human strength. If you don't go with us, if you don't undergird us, sustain us, and preserve us, all is lost. But you've promised to be with your servants to the very end of the age. So we trust in your promises, Father. Make us faithful people to the end. 
and will give you all the praise and all the glory for whatever you and your sovereignty choose to bring about. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.